The moment that truly made me panic was when an 11-year-old pastor's kid asked me what a prostitute was. My brain was screaming, this is above my pay grade, for a solid 10 seconds while my mouth went, uh, I somehow managed an age-appropriate definition. It was a good parental test run. Damn, I'm glad I didn't peek in high, high school. Cause my best days would be in the past. Hey everyone, welcome to Unlearning Youth Group. We're the podcast where we take a look at all the things we learned back in youth group. We find the good, unlearn the bad, and figure out where the heck we go from here. We haven't met. My name is Jonathan Caron, and we're joined as always by our co-host, Mr. Eric Williams. Eric, go ahead and say hey to the people. Hey, what is up? Halfway through the season, ready to start the second half off strong with this week. This week is one that could make people feel awkward because it's a little more aggressive i think um we're gonna try not to be aggressive with it but it's it's a little more controversial there's not as much i guess you could say um consensus thought on this one as there are some of the other topics we're talking about but today we're talking about mission trips as vacations Mm. and before we get started i want to i want to give you the premise of what we're talking about just so we're all on the same page here um, because i know certain language can get people tripped up The general idea is that our mission trips and sometimes even summer camps were oftentimes vacations for students masquerading as mission trips. And here's the reason I say that. If you've gone on a foreign mission trip, you know the typical mission trip travel schedule. It's you leave from wherever you are on Saturday, you fly down to wherever it is, Uh, On Sunday, you're getting acclimated to where you are. It's just a day to get settled and to meet the team you're partnering with. So you don't really do anything. You eat some food. You you maybe go to a church service, um, but it's not necessarily any type of working that day. And then maybe Monday through Thursday, you'll serve a few hours during the day. And then if you're like most suburban American mission trips, you're probably staying somewhere pretty nice. Mm -hmm. You're not roughing it in the bush or anything like that. I remember we went to a mission trip in Guatemala. We were traveling an hour or two each day into the jungle and then coming back and staying at their version of a five-star resort and going down water slides at night. So you do that Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, that was your fun day of being a tourist. That was your spend money, your day to go see the sites and go shopping and take it all in. And then Saturday you travel home. So you'd spend Fifteen hundred, three thousand dollars on a mission trip, and end up doing eight to sixteen hours of work for the entire week, and the rest of it was fun things or educational things. Or other people would spend fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars because you raised those funds because you're doing God's work. Yes. So there is an Andrew Stanley stand-up piece that he did. Uh, Eric, you just sent me this, so tell people you can probably paraphrase it better than I can. Yeah. Well, so Andrew Stanley, he is the son of Andy Stanley, North Point uh, lead pastor founder, and he's a stand-up comedian and he's great. We had him at our, at a church function one time and 
and he roasts uh, mission trips for about a minute. So basically, the line of joking is he pokes fun at people who, uh, and he he says, uh, you know, I was friends with a with a girl on Facebook, and it seemed like her mission on the mission trip was to take as many photos with little African babies as possible, and she sure succeeded. And so he kind of pokes fun at going on mission trips for the Instagram photo, for the pictures with uh, the locals, and then he also talks about, which I think is true, he he talks about sending, you know, twelve college students to sub. Saharan Africa to dig a well. And obviously we're not expert well diggers or haven't done uh, that ever before in their life. And so really poking fun at that as well as we, we send people to do um, skilled labor jobs that we have absolutely no skill for. And he does it in a funny way and he does it in front of church people. And every time I've heard him say it in church groups, they laugh about it. It's nervous laughter, but they laugh about it. So today's episode really, I mean, there's hopefully going to be some humor in it as like we always try to do, but we want to rethink mission trips and rethink and, and take a different look at why we do mission trips, what they're supposed to look like. We're going to stick to our normal format of intro on the topic like we just did. We're about to talk some of the bad things about where we got mission trips wrong, but we do want to find good in it. And we do want to rethink how we look at mission trips in the future because there is value in leaving home and going to serve people. So we don't want to just poop on that and make you think that we don't care at all about mission trips. Uh, That's not the point of this. Mm -hmm. So before we can get to the good stuff, let's go ahead and talk through some of the bad things. And there's a great article on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, There's a bunch of articles, a bunch of different places about this. Um, But we're going to pull some of the stuff we're talking about from that. It's called I'd Probably Still Cancel your short-term mission trip. And there's three big points in it that I wanted to pull out. And Eric, you can jump in and add yours Mm -hmm. in this as well. And the biggest one is that when we take 10, 15, 20 high school and college age kids to another country to partner with one of our partner organizations who are there long time, long-term, they're there for not weeks, but years and years, those missionaries end up becoming tour guides to a bunch of white kids from suburbia instead of disciplers and evangelists in their community. Yeah. So a lot of times that's very true. And and again, to go back, this may not apply to you. You may not, you may have a great missions team at your church. You may have people that are dedicated. You may support um, long-term in-country missionaries as well. So that may not apply to you, but I think the article definitely, you know, casts some light on it, on the ways that it can become dangerous. And there's also another resource. It's called When Helping Hurts. This really changed things for me and my family is reading that When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Uh, I think it's Steve Corbett is the is the lead author on that one. But basically talking through how spending money to send people who have no skill uh, to a, because this was typical at our church is exactly what Andrew Stanley was talking about is like, we would get a group of people of 12 or 13 people and they would be the mission team. And then we would send them and it was always manual labor. It was build a house, dig a well, all these sorts of things. We were doing things that the people in the country could do. 
and they could probably do it better than our people. So rather than spending the money to pay people on the ground to do the work, right? Stimulate the local economy, give people jobs and and get, create a cycle where they're helping each other. We've now sent a bunch of people that are not doing the job nearly as well. We're sending it in. And just like you said, the people that are on the ground are now the tour guides or the general contractors, or they have to go back and fix the the work that that we screwed up anyway. So imagine what, like, let's just say the mission trip costs $2,000. We take 15 kids or 15 people. So you have leaders and 15 total people. That's 30 grand right there that was spent to show these people what was going on over there. What could 30 grand do for our long-term missionaries? Right. And so that's, that's the question we have to ask there in terms of, is it a financial positive to send kids over and do things like that. There's an argument for it. I understand that, but that's just something we have to think about is that sending people on short-term trips like that, take away resources from the people who will be there long-term. We have to rethink and take that into consideration as we do it. And then one other thing that we have to take into consideration, you just hit on this, Eric, but I think it's one that is important to hit again. When we go over and do things like that. We do things for communities. We don't do them with them. Mm -hmm. And so the it's been studied that the long-term change is when we can go do things with people. It's yep. the things that they could be doing on their own, but we're going to come help them do it. It's not like, oh, we're going to come paint for you. Well, mm -hmm. they could have painted on their own, but so we're really just over there serving to feel good about ourselves. Right. We're not actually doing any change there. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, it, it creates this unhealthy dynamic between the ones who are serving and the ones, I guess, quote, being served. You know, as we already talked about, not only are we sending people that are not skilled in the thing that we're actually doing, because painting is a great example. I, I led a group of high school kids in Costa Rica. And our job was to paint the inside of a, a women's shelter, which is like, yeah, great. We should have done. I mean, that's, that's awesome. But did we need to spend 30 plus grand to go down there to do that? And then also don't forget, we're spreading the gospel. Um, okay, great. But I can tell you what a group of 12 to 16 year olds aren't the most proficient gospel spreaders, especially in a language which they do not speak. And so you have a translator that's doing it Anyway, and so like, again, I feel like we got to keep doing disclaimers here. Your team might have been different. Your experience might be great. You're doing it better. Are we saying that all these things were failures? Not necessarily. Um, but what we do is we set up this assumption, if we're not careful, that the people in these foreign countries are not capable or they're not capable of doing it for themselves. And now we come in as the American saviors or as the American evangelical church saviors, rather than going in there for the right re or not, I shouldn't say that rather than going in there with a mindset of partnering with the, the local economy and sending the right people or sending them for the right reasons in order to help build a sustainable um, system in that country. Cause that would be the last thing that, that I would say too, is I can't tell you how many times I heard someone say, or I've said it myself at the end of a mission trip, oh, we're going to be back next year. Oh, we're coming back. And then you never go back. And so now you're also setting up this expectation. And I think if you talk to people who receive mission trip groups like this in those countries, 
they'd tell you the same thing. Yeah. I mean, people say they're going to come back and they say they're going to do this and that. And the other thing we've just learned that it's hard to trust groups that don't have that um, intentional relationship building and build in, like you said, with them instead of doing it for them or doing it to them. And again, no one goes into these situations like, oh, I want to take a vacation to whatever. And right. so I think the intentions behind this, and I, I, this is the reason we do this podcast this way. The intentions behind these trips were pure. They right. were to help. They were to spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. However, as we've talked about before with a lot of these topics, good intentions led to bad results. And so that is what happened here. There, there were great intentions, but these are just bad things that have happened. And there's all sorts of books that have been written, articles that have been written. If you want to dive more into this, reach out to us, but we don't want to sit in the negative the entire episode mm-hmm. because we could keep talking about these things and moving forward and diving deeper, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to find the good behind it and then do better in the future. Right. So as we look at mission trips that turned into vacations, what did we get right? What was that good intention underlying the bad approach? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, some, some situations might be different, you know, obviously this is, this is going to expose privilege for a lot of people, but there, there are many people that the only time they ever get out into either a foreign country or into a socioeconomic situation that is different than their own is through a church mission trip. So as a kid, as a 12 to 16, 12 to 18 year old, or into college, 12 to 21 year old kid, uh, being exposed to an environment that's different than your own. Uh, and like, for me, there was a lot of like, oh man, I'm super embarrassed by what all these high school students are doing and, you know, taking photos of people on the street without asking them and ah, a little social faux pas like that. But at the same time, it created great learning opportunities for us to talk through. What does it mean to not have the same things? What is, you know, no, of course they don't, they don't have a cell phone or, you know, or Wi-Fi or the things that you have every single day. So I think it's good exposure and realizing that, you know, one, you should be thankful for the blessings that you have, but also understanding that there are people in this world that do not have the same things that you do. And so what, what do we need to do uh, what does the gospel call us to do because of that? I think that was one major thing. And not even just the people don't have things you do. I think exposing you to a different way of life is good mm-hmm. too. I think one of the things we've we've seen and we're seeing even more of in the United States right now is people are staying around like-minded people more than ever before. Yeah, if silos. you're a progressive from a city you've likely never met a rural farmer who lives in the middle of nowhere and is conservative. Mm -hmm. And so you have a projected idea of what that person is, a caricature of that person. If you're a rural farmer, or if you live in a town like where I live now, that is, uh, it's very rural. Like our city limits have 5,000 people in it or 7,000 people, something like that. Like, you've never met someone and really gotten to know someone from inner city, whatever, mm-hmm. who deal with things differently. We, I think we've talked about this in another episode, but my town is like 92, 93% white. Mm-hmm. I was never exposed to black kids growing up. I remember in high school, I was my junior year. Someone asked our principal, Miss Dockery, how many black kids do we have at our school? And she named all 11 of them. 
oh, because man. that was the that was the exposure. So imagine mm. me, and then I went to Liberty, which is yep. about as white as white gets, other than BYU. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't around other kids then either. And so imagine me as a 23-year-old just out of seminary high school intern had been there eight days and we take a bus trip to inner city Jacksonville to spend a week down there. And um, we partnered with a ministry down there that was doing um, a VBS. We did some construction projects and beautification and those things. So there were some good things, but I'm, I'm with a youth group in from West Knoxville. So we were in the wealthiest part of Knoxville. All these kids came from, they had plenty. So you had a white area of privilege for them. You had a white rural poor area for me. And we're driving through inner city Jacksonville and we see a woman in the street on something. Mm -hmm. Like we had girls in the bus crying because they, they couldn't understand what was going on. So to be introduced to what other people go through who are in the same country as us, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. I remember one night we were sitting in, we had come back to the school we were staying at and we did our worship thing. And one of the women who ran the organization we were partnered with, she was coming and talking to us about how all these things that these kids in this community that we're working in, they don't have access to. And my rural white pride came out like, no, I, I have student loans so they can get student loans just like I can to go to college. They can go to the library and put in applications just like people I know had to do. So I'm fighting back this intrinsic thing inside of me. But as I got to know them more and more, as we worked throughout the week, I realized like, oh, this white privilege thing is an actual thing. Like the, when, when they say these kids don't have access, they don't have access. And so it actually exposed me to a different way of life and people who thinking different. Because if you come from conservative America, you think the progressives and the liberals are demons. And if you come from progressive liberal America, you think conservatives are racist dummies and to actually sit down and meet people and have real conversations with them and learn what they're about and why they are. It exposes you to the gospel more and realizes that we're a lot bigger than just the areas that we grew up in and the ideology that we were taught from our neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the other thing is it shows you what you have in common with those areas too. Um, yes. I, I don't know if, if you can, if you can identify with this, you know, my wife was, uh, she was raised in the, I guess, poorest County in Ohio. Um, and so rural poor, just like you're talking about. And now she, well, and she's had history teaching at inner city urban areas and, you know, she makes great connections with these kids because, she identifies with a lot of the same struggles. They just look different and the struggles are the same. Uh, on the flip side, um, I grew up in a majority minority school uh, in rural New Mexico. And so I was, if you look at all my elementary school photos, I was like the only white kid with a bunch of Hispanic kids and, you know, Native American uh, kids and stuff like that. And it's like, 
so when I would go to a Latin American country, you know, there were things that I identified with as well. And then the other piece is looking at another country or how people are in a different situation. And I don't now I don't automatically assume everything in the USA is better than everything for everybody else. Like there are people that are perfectly happy in the countries that they are. And I know that seems incredibly naive and ignorant to say and people are like, yeah, sure. duh. But there are probably listeners out there that like that that might shock you that not everybody wants to be in the lifestyle and the thing that I have, and they don't all want to move to the United States and we're not better. We're just different. And so someone who's in sub-Saharan Africa or someone who's in the, the jungles of Central America or in the, you know, the barrios in, in Latin America, or like Germany the, the, or Australia, or Germany or Australia, anything like that, like that you get exposed to their culture and you realize it's like, oh, I, maybe I, maybe I realize that people are just different. It's, they're not worse off. They're just different. And so mission trips have the opportunity to expose us to those things to give us a bigger picture of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And to they also can awaken things in you that you didn't know were there. Like I have met kids who they went on these mission trips and that trip was the thing that said, you know what, I'm going to go be a long-term missionary in this country and live there amongst the people for a decade of my life and serve them that way. So there are good things that come from that. I don't want people to hear this episode and immediately think that we think all mission trips are bad because we don't, but we do have to reframe it. Like we've talked about another thing that I think is really important is putting people, students, teenagers, in situations that are uncomfortable and taking them out of their comfort zone. It's the same thing we talked about in the cry nights episode where part of the reason we do camps and retreats or mission trips is to get kids out of their normal routine. Mm -hmm. And so to have a shock to the system, to put them in uncomfortable positions makes them, makes us rethink things that we already thought and, gives us the space and the perspective to reframe things. Yep. Yeah. I think that's, that's great is to be able to do that and to get in those uncomfortable situations. How do you handle it? Also, like we talked about earlier, like learning from these situations in, I wouldn't say a safe environment necessarily, but in an environment where you have, if your youth leaders are, if your youth leaders have it together, like they can help provide some, of the context. And so it's not really safe, but it's a, it's, it's an evaluated experience. It's a, it's an experience that you can be um, coached on or given feedback on as you go to and give, I, I guess, given the perspective as well in those areas. So you can actually grow instead of, um, you know, being either stuck in your current mindset or falling on your face and then never being able to learn from it. So where do we go from here? We've talked about good. We've talked about the bad emission trips. As we rethink this and move forward for the ministries we might lead, as we think through mission trips as adults, how do we reframe this in our mind? What What do you think the first thing, the first step is in that? Oh man. Okay. So this is where I think um, the churches that I've been a part of, luckily for me, I think they have done it in a really great way of actually investing locally in the economy. And so, um, you know, one of the first churches I was a part of, we worked with GCLA, which is Great Commission Latin America. And so what they did was essentially invest in church planters that were local 
in those countries. And so, uh, you know, we asked them and we let them lead. I say we, I wasn't a part of the mission, you know, the mission department, but essentially letting them lead and saying, what is it that you need? And yeah, sure. There were still plenty of times where we would send unskilled laborers to build the walls and to do the things. But they said, hey, let's stay with host families instead of in hotels. That'll save on costs. That'll also expose you uh, to more of the locals. That'll let our people serve you as well, you know, locally to serve the missionaries and things like that. And so, um, you know, that was one piece. The other thing is we get an idea of what the infrastructure is down there, what they need and how we can serve them best. And sometimes it's sending money. Sometimes it's, we need to send a medical, a, a medical mission trip down there. Sometimes we need to send educators and people who are skilled in certain areas. And other times, yeah, we just, we send the, the 12 people that want to have a heart for Jesus and then they come back. And the other benefit is they tell everybody what a great time that they had and tell everybody about the, you know, the situation going on there and really become a sounding board for others to motivate them to give and to serve as well. I really think one of the key issues and the key things we can do is listen to our partners on the ground of what they actually need instead Mm -hmm. of trying to fill something in our program to do. Because one of the mission trips I was on, we went to Guatemala. We partnered with uh, a doctor down there who did medical trips into the jungle. And what they do, they can take skilled, unskilled laborers and show them how to do these things. Their entire Mm -hmm. ministry is set up to do that because they need the hands more than they need the skills. So they've got a couple or a few people on the ground year round who are the skilled laborers. And then they need people to come in and just help them to be hands and feet for them so they can care for the locals. And so by doing that with partnering with someone on the ground who says they need hands and feet, they don't need skills, then, okay, we're not going in. We're not harming anything. We're not taking those people out of what they were already doing. We're actually serving them and helping them. So I think it's a, it's a lot about if we're doing foreign trips listening to what our partners actually need and providing that instead of saying, man, I really want to expose our kids to this. So let's go do it. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, it's just a flip of a switch there in terms of, and then personally, this is my bent. So I'm going to go ahead and own that. This is just the way I'm wired, but I think as unsexy as it is, doing things locally at home for students in your town and different parts of your town is really important because Mm -hmm. our towns, our geography is siloed. You have the white part of town, the black part of town, the poor part of town, the rich part of town, the Asian part of town, the Hispanic part of town, whatever it is like your town, you know, the pockets that you have within that. And a lot of times our students never actually meet or go through those other pockets of town to really see what their neighbors are experiencing. So to take a week and serve your local community so you can see what's happening right down the street, that allows you to have long-term partnerships in your community. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to expose your kids to people who are right down the street from them. They're only 15 minutes away and they're living a totally different life than you are believing totally different than you do in all sorts of things, but you've never met them because you've been in your silo. So we can, if, if our goal is to expose kids to other environments, then we can do that at home 
for a couple hundred bucks instead of a few sure. thousand. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, this is probably a different topic for a different day as we usually get into in these things, but it's just like your, your church's model of like, it would be the same as if you're going to skip over a certain neighborhood of trying to reach people. Uh, you know, if you are, um, if you are neglecting the neighborhood directly around your church in order to serve people 3000, 5000, 10,000, you know, however many thousand miles away, like maybe you need to reevaluate that. We're not saying you can't do both, but I think that is key too, to say, like, if you, if you're not even looking into your own local area, there are probably people right around the corner that need you as the local church. And if your church is at the point size wise where you're doing an effective job of both, or you can figure out a way to do both. I think that's great, but there's plenty of opportunities domestically we can help. Absolutely. And then the other thing I think is really effective is short-term trips for crisis moments. This is where we, as adults, we really can make the most impact. If you have a skill, whether it's medical, construction, whatever, when hurricanes hit, when natural disasters happen, when there's a place with a legit need now, mm -hmm. as we move forward as adults, I think it's important for us to put both time and money into our schedule so that when we see a need, we have the resources and the capacity to help with it. Right. And that might not be all of us, um, I don't know how great a marketer will help with storm relief. So I'm probably not going to be going on those trips. Sure. But as an adult who owns a business, I can put I can put money in my budget to say, hey, that hurricane just ripped through wherever. And we've got my church as a team going, I'm gonna I'm gonna sponsor that and help pay for that so that we can be the relief. And yep. I think it's important as adults to be thinking about how can we help in legit, tangible ways as we move forward, because there's always going to be needs around us, but we want to do it in the most effective way possible. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, sure, again, this, <laughs> it, sometimes you just need to send bodies to do things. Got it. Great. Fine. You know, sometimes you need to send the marketer that is not really good with a, a shovel or lifting or building. I mean, that's me raising my hand right here. Not okay. good with anything, anything blue collars, you know, any, any tangible physical skill I'm not great at, but you know, what I can do is help tell the story and, you know, tell the story of people around. So yeah, there are different ways to use your gifts and use them. But I think, you know, as we've said the entire time, the right way is figure out what is the actual need? What is the actual intent and uh, align people's skills and desires with the needs that are there. And that may look different from, from person to person and trip to trip. So if you're making those trips, they shouldn't look the same every time. And you shouldn't just be, you know, copy and pasting 12 people go on the trip and all build a wall and mix concrete and paint stuff. And then the last thing I'll say is I think one of the most effective things we can do if we're going to continue doing some of these vacation-ish trips is to change our thinking on them. It's not about those trips aren't necessarily about making an impact for the community we're going to. It's not, I guess we're going to serve them some. Yes, we're going to try to do these things, but those trips are about exposing our students and our people to the needs around us and how big the gospel is and how the gospel moves us to help. 
those are discipleship opportunities more so than serving opportunities. Serving will be a part of it, but if we approach it as if we are going to learn, we are going to be exposed to things, we want to see what God is doing, then those are discipleship opportunities instead of white savior opportunities. Yep. And so it's just a shift in thinking as opposed to a shift in doing. Totally agree. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. I know this topic was kind of, I mean, there's some stuff to wrestle with, so it's a little meatier and a little harder to digest. But next week, um, we're hoping it will be a little lighter, but uh, it's still, and I think it's a really important one because next week, we're talking about how growing up, we glorified testimonials and testimonies and stories that were outrageous uh, and yeah. how that minimized those of us who may have been Christians our entire life. We felt like we weren't enough, that we weren't good enough. And it also led to some lying and some harmful things as right. well. So if, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, go ahead and subscribe to the show, rate us, review us. If you've got a story for the front end of the episode that you think is funny or awkward or entertaining, uh, email them to hello at unlearningyouthgroup.com. Or uh, if you're on TikTok, put them on TikTok, tag me at Jonathan underscore Carone. I would love to see those as well. But that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging out. And we will be back next week.